This is Champagne Problems, where we come together to explore the gray areas of drinking. This is a judgment-free zone where we can all take a look at how we make decisions about our relationship with alcohol. Well, hello, listeners. Boy, do we have a great one for you today. A force of a lady named Molly Barker will be joining Sam and I for a powerful conversation. Molly's the founder of Girls on the Run, an international nonprofit that uses running to empower young girls by emphasizing the connection between physical and emotional health. Girls on the Run began in Charlotte in 1996 with Molly and 13 little girls and has since grown to serve over 2 million girls across North America. Girls on the Run has earned numerous accolades, including the Daily Point of Light Award given by President Obama and former President Bush at the White House. What an incredible story. This is just one of the many successes on Molly's resume. The rest you can hear from her. Let's go to Molly. Molly Barker, welcome to Champagne Problems. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. We are very excited to have you in the studio today. And and yes, she is sitting right next to me, folks, in the flesh. I asked Molly very early on if she would come on to the podcast. And very early on, she said yes. And then she moved to Marfa, Texas. That's right. And then it sort of (laughs) turned into a no because I was in Marfa, Texas. And then it was a no. Yeah. And then I got contacted, and now it's a yes, and here we are, and we are super excited. So, girls on the run, <laughs> let's dive into it, how, why, all the stuff. Oh my gosh, the story starts, which we'll get into later, I'm sure, growing up in an alcoholic home, um, lots of dysfunction, lots of trauma, and that did not save me from um, myself. So, when I turned 14, I started drinking. And went down the path of addiction. And at age 32, just had an epiphany while out on a run where I became aware of a lot of things. But one of those that I was allowing outside influences to define who I am and realized I didn't want to do that anymore. So I got, you know, I started going to 12-step meetings, kind of turned my life around and started Girls on the Run three years later to give girls the place to define themselves on their own terms, to define their own narrative so they wouldn't kind of have to conform to some outdated or unachievable stereotype. And how long ago was that? 1996 was when I started. Sobriety was 1993. Yeah. Got it. Fast forward, not to now, but a little bit later, and it's taking off, it's going nuts, you're winning awards, it's spreading across North America. I mean, (laughs) what in the world? Really? Did you, I mean, how did you... Did you know that? I mean, what what in the world? How does that happen? Oh, I had glimpses that it would that this would happen. I mean, it clearly touched something in people. And what the magic of Girls on the Run is that it gets to the real core of what it gets to the core of everything, which is the essence of us, the thing that we come into the world with. You mm-hmm. know, systems and other things like to control that, and so. Everybody could resonate with, I just want to be myself. And that sounds so simple, but it's not simple at all. It's very difficult. So it got, it just took off. Like you said, it was crazy. And uh, yeah, I mean, even now, I mean, the program has served, thanks to hundreds of thousands of volunteers and staff, two Mm -hmm. and a quarter million girls. And it's still unbelievable to me. Wow. Good gracious. It's incredible. For our listeners who don't know about Girls on the Run, can you give us a little spiel about what the program is? Sure. So Girls on the Run is an after-school program 
eight to ten week after school program where third to eighth grade girls meet twice a week. We have two programs, one for elementary, one for middle. And they learn all about how to define themselves through a series of activities that train them not only for a 5K at the end of the program, but train them to sort of take on life with a lot of resilience and confidence. And so I wrote the original curriculum. And then with the help of others now, there's multiple curricula that mm-hmm. we implement over these, you know, six years. Hmm. So they're training for a 5K. So there is that body autonomy piece, too, which is, you know, Mm -hmm. this is my body, and I can train this, and I'm responsible for it, and I appreciate it, and it can do all these amazing things. So it's a celebration of a 5K. So they're non-competitive. Oh, wow. Yeah. Got it. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's so cool. I'm going to read a quick quote. The founder of Girls on the Run and globally recognized role model for positive change, Molly Barker inspires all people to embrace their individual strengths, ask the hard questions of themselves, and realize their potential to change the world. You could say everybody would just wish to be that way. Where does that come from in you? I feel an intense responsibility to be a good human. And there isn't a day that goes by where I'm conflicted about what that looks like especially in today's political climate. Um, What does it look like to be a kind and good human? Is that standing up for uh, marginalized groups, or is it staying quiet and, and, you know, moving to the background so that others can speak up? And I've carried this sort of question in my mind all of my life, not that in particular, but what does it mean to be a strong and kind person. Mm -hmm. And I think Girls on the Run is an outcome of that. It's giving girls the tools to speak up for themselves and each other, and also to be self-reflective about, you know, how can I be the the boldest and most real version of myself? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think about this. I lose sleep over this and have ever since I was a little girl growing up in this dysfunctional house, Mm -hmm. you know, wondering all those things with a mother who I knew loved me dearly but was struggling with intense alcoholism. You know, it's it's a home of lots of confusion. Yeah. Yeah. Where does the running component come from, Molly? Yeah, so my mom, when she got... So I had the privilege of seeing my mom get sober when I was in fourth grade. That was 1970. Mm-hmm. And my mother started running when she was 48 or something. And this was in 1970. And just to give you sort of a portrait of that time, women were not running. The only available sort of recreational sports for women besides golf and tennis was just exercising in their homes. Uh-huh. You know, there was no adult sports there was no why for women there was nothing so she would go running in the morning which was a really radical act for someone (laughs) at that time and so she started taking me with her and it was in those early morning hours where I think the seeds for girls on the run were planted my mother's getting sober we talked about the real things we got deep with each other on those morning runs and uh it's also interestingly about the time when I was 14 I started drinking but that bond that beautiful space of running was always that safe place for friendship and fellowship and time with myself and nature. I love that. Wow. I was going to ask how young you were when your mom got sober, because that's obviously a, an influential piece. Yeah, I was 10 when she got sober, or nine actually. Yeah, and I mean, you know, I struggle sometimes. I've done a lot of work on a, uh, revisiting 
but not over revisiting my youth, you know, and dealing with some of the trauma of those early years. And I had the privilege of both, kind of. I got to see the, the worst of my mother's behavior, and I got to see what happens when someone gets sober. That made me cry. Well, I was in fourth grade, easy, and, easy, easy. and um, she just blossomed. She became this strong, empowered woman who went and started working in the treatment industry. She was speaking out about alcoholism transparently, as we're doing here, but she was doing this mm-hmm. in the 70s. Mm-hmm. So she was pretty pretty amazing. I was listening to your TED Talk and cracking up at the thought of, like, just seeing your mom in this whole new light. And, you know, you talk about even her, like, sweating in the kitchen. You're like, women don't sweat. Like, we are not allowed to do any of these things in the South. We have to be perfect and blonde and have high jacked up hair with lots of volume and look this certain way and do these certain (laughs) things. And it was just so refreshing. And, And I think you can really hear in your voice even how magical that was for you to see her in such a different light and what a beautiful thing that you've been able to create this for that space for so many young girls now I I know I mean I I realize how important my mother is in the creation of Girls on the Run and the relationship that I had with her once she got sober you know one of the things that I will um, also mention was I mean, she started doing all the daily practices that are important, at least for me now that I'm sober, to be sober. So she was meditating every morning. She began to practice yoga. And just nobody was doing that that I was conscious of back in the 70s. They're just now going to do it. (laughs) Just now. So it was like, who is this strange being in my house? But, oh, my God, she was just this peaceful. She was just an amazing human. Like, the transformation was incredible. How did she find that? She is like me. I think just a constant seeker, curious about, you know, how to better. uh, I don't like to use the expression better oneself because I think we're always doing the best that we can. But Mm -hmm. to be the the stronger version of herself. Um, And so she was reading. She did TM. This was sort of popular back then. Definitely 12-step program. AA was huge for her, and she Mm -hmm. was very involved in that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Man, I wish I could have met her. Well, she was really, she was sort of an icon in the AA rooms. You know, she would say things that other people might not. (sighs) You know, she (sighs) just spoke up about her humanity, her sexuality. You know, she was just speaking up, and a lot of young women um, wanted her for their sponsors. When did she pass away? Uh, 2000. Two, so it's been a while. Okay. Yeah. I'm just trying to think. The first times I was in the rooms was yeah. around that time. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I could have seen her, but I yeah. don't. Know. Wow! Holy cow! All right. Well, let's do some of your journey mm-hmm. into sobriety, and mm-hmm. and we didn't, you know, we're not into war stories and that kind of stuff, but you know, whatever's essential. Oh my gosh! So, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I like to tell people that I tried seven times to get sober. <laughs> And uh, starting with age 17, my mother enrolled me in an outpatient treatment facility. She was five years sober. So I can't imagine what it must have been like for somebody that early in sobriety to be worrying about their own child, you Mm -hmm. know, and seeing them go down the same path they had gone. And that didn't work. And then there were just all these multiple times that I tried. I got involved in sports, big time, you know, started doing triathlon. So I'd go through these long periods of sobriety because I was, quote, training. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the minute the training was over, I'd go, you know, 
get drunk again. Real quick, were mm-hmm. your were your tries were those uh, individual, you know, for yourself, or was a lot of it being pressured? Probably a little bit of both. A little bit of both, but yeah. I'd say the majority of them were after some kind of shit had hit the fan, yeah. you know. And uh, I don't know how bold we want to be about that. Uh, we are super bold. Okay, so like, you know, um, waking up in places where I don't remember how I got there. Sure. Promising things to people that I, there was clearly no way I could deliver on that. Mm-hmm. Um, hurting people a lot, you know. Mm-hmm. So the shame was just overwhelming. And I'd have these huge mushroom clouds of shame. Then I'd be like, oh, I'm going to get my act together. And so I'd get sober for a little bit. And then, and as soon as things started to feel good, then I'd just mm-hmm. go back out. I know yeah. that story. Yeah. I do. And uh, a lot of my stuff, I mean, to be, you know, I was a, a, a woman before the Me Too movement, you know, but all the Me Too stuff was happening. Mm-hmm. So uh, a lot of my st- stuff that created a lot of shame was around relationships with men. Mm-hmm. and. You know, unwanted touching, but I let them do it anyway. And, you know, I just felt, I just felt so bad about myself all the time Mm -hmm. in that regards. So, yeah. So on the back end, looking at, you know, alcohol in particular Mm -hmm. as a substance and as a influencer in a lot of those decisions, you know, what are your thoughts on it these days around that? You know, I've tried to educate both of my children that... No, you know, no means no, and yes means yes, and you don't go, you don't go in the in-between space unless yeah. you get a clear yes. Kinda means yes. Yes, yeah, <laughs> that's not that. No, right. you either get a clear yes or you get a clear no, mm-hmm. and you act, you don't act, you act on both of those, mm-hmm. right? There's no in-between. You know, alcohol can be a part of that or not, um, and I don't think alcohol is an excuse for anyone's. Uh, bad behavior towards a woman, mm-hmm. you know, I just don't think it is. So, and I don't think alcohol means you, as a woman, you, uh, somebody can have their, their way with me. I mean, it's no. just not okay. Yeah. No. Yeah. So it's not an excuse Yeah. either way. What was it like for you kind of going through the, the process of working on those mushroom clouds of shame? I mean, c- certainly several attempts at That's sobriety, they question. can both be really hopeful good. and can feel really helpless I'm curious kind of how you move through those I think in the early attempts at getting sober I just wanted the shame to go away I just wanted the pain to go away so it wasn't the the getting you know the going to meetings or getting help or going to see a therapist Mm -hmm. it was damage control it it was just make this pain go away Mm. And it was still that immediate desire for the pain to go away. I didn't think about the long haul, you know. And it was the last try where I was like, I really can't live in this pain anymore. You know, so I'm going to do what it takes to get Mm -hmm. out of this pain. But those initial tries were, you know, it'd take the pain away for a little while. And Mm -hmm. it's interesting, the last time I got sober, (laughs) uh, there was no big mushroom cloud. It was just feeling hopeless. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't like a big event occurred or I had a blackout or I woke up somewhere. It was like Mm -hmm. it was just depression and I wasn't sure I wanted to live anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And then I assume, you know, in those moments, it's it's a connection between 
alcohol mm. or non-sobriety and these current feelings. I mean, that's kind of yeah. where we get is, why am I feeling this way? Well, it's because of this, <laughs> you know, and if I don't do what it takes to not go back to that, I'm going to continue feeling this. Yeah. And I wasn't even sure what, I just know I was feeling overwhelming depression and shame. And I wasn't sure. There's no way I'm going to be able to address that if I continue to drink. Drinking is creating more of it and also masking whatever else is going on. Mm -hmm. And I think as I've gotten older, I've had more grace towards myself as not condemning myself for my addiction or being an alcoholic, but seeing it Mm -hmm. as one way I tried to cope with a lot of the stuff that I'd grown up with. So it's not like being, ang- you know, feeling shame about that. Like right. I tried to feel better. It's survival. Yeah, it is survival. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's natural too when you're working through those early stages of um, sobriety or even just kind of stepping away from alcohol temporarily to go, okay, everything feels better now, so it's probably safe to drink again. I mean, I I don't think that everyone looks at it as like, I'm going to reward myself with a beer for having been abstinent for three months. I don't think that it's that simple. I think sometimes it really is, um, whether you're an alcoholic or a gray area drinker, I think it's very natural to remove something and go, okay, I removed that. Things are going a whole lot better. Like, let's tiptoe back in, see what happens. And Sometimes you can't tiptoe back in. Sometimes it's deep end instead. But it's no different than I think a lot of times what we do with our diet. Like <laughs> we're having these issues with dairy. Let me remove dairy. See what happens. Okay, I'm feeling better. Like definitely going to get a white pizza today, you know, and forget that that's, that was the thing, right? I do it with caffeine all the time. My anxiety's high. I should stop drinking so coffee true. for a little bit. Yeah. Stop drinking coffee for a little bit. Anxiety's down. I can have coffee again. Nope. <laughs> Anxiety is down because the the coffee gets removed, right? And I think that it's really, it's difficult to keep that in perspective. And even if logically you know that that's the thing that is making the difference or you know that that's having a big impact, your logical sense of that thing is not at all connected to the physiological part of you that wants the relief from the substance. And so I think that's where a lot of times we are going through these five, six, seven stages of, let me try that. Oops, that didn't work. Let me try it this way. Because we've, we've got to figure out how to tackle all of it and not just a piece of it. And I'm curious for you, like how did, how did your sobriety journey, um, evolve like a lot of people talk about this as you know sobriety versus recovery what do you think the other things were that you started to tackle as sobriety turned into recovery for you okay (laughs) so being brutal yeah honest I think I've been floating in a sea of um complacent sobriety for a long time which is better than being drunk. So I got sober when I was 32, started Girls on the Run, started a family, you know, got very busy, mm-hmm. was getting a lot of, you know, notoriety, hopefully good for Girls on the Run. And so life got very busy again, you know, raising kids, all of that, which is another form of coping. And 
perhaps masking some of the things mm-hmm. that I sh- might have been masking with alcohol. And I'm, I'm not suggesting that the, all those beautiful things like Girls on the Run and My Children were bad. I'm just saying they were another way to sort of mask. Mm. And it's been in the last five years where I've really consciously stepped away from all the roles and all the narratives of who I am and really gone deep on some of those early childhood trauma things. And I will say mm-hmm. that coming out to this point where I am now is I feel I am I am in love with myself in the best of ways like I like who I am um and I've established stronger boundaries and I wish I could say that I had all that shit together Mm -hmm. in my 30s or 40s but I didn't Mm -hmm. and so this is just the reality this is where I am it feels like life is it's a lifelong process this coming round to our full selves yeah yeah That makes so much more sense to me, though, than someone who got sober very quickly, entered recovery, and was just able to smooth sail, even with life busyness. And I mean, I think it's so much more of an authentic kind of ownership of, yeah, I got sober, and then I was doing the things. And then it got quiet, and I went back, and I revisited things. And, you know, maybe it's spirituality. Maybe it is more of kind of body and mind connection. Maybe it's the fellowship aspect. But I think there's layers, right? And you said yourself, like, I think everyone's always doing the best they can. And your sobriety was beautiful then, and it's beautiful now. And it it just depends what layers are there for people. And I think that's one of the things with our podcast is because we do have a lot of gray area drinkers, just really encouraging people to look at the whole picture. It's not just about whether you stop drinking or step away from alcohol temporarily, or reduce your use. It's about your life. It has to be about everything. Yeah, it's so true. Uh, you know, and I, like I said, uh, you you mentioned that I went to Texas. I don't know why I went there when I went there, but now I know why. It mm. was during COVID. Lots of solitude. Lots of alone time that included loneliness, which is different than being alone. And uh, one of the things that's funny now I can't remember what I was going to say. That happens, too. Yeah. Hold on. Hold on. It's coming. Oh, one of the things. (laughs) (laughs) One of the things that I noticed was it's like over since I got sober, there have been I don't know if I could describe this, but you know, those drills that go down into the earth Mm -hmm. that get oil. Okay, this is partly a Texas motif, I guess, but (laughs) occasionally I would get glimpses that there was something more I needed to work on Mm -hmm. and they would show up sometimes in the form of debilitating anxiety Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so I wouldn't call them panic attacks but they were moments where I just couldn't function you know so this was during girls on the run and this was during raising my kids I'd have these periodic moments of just complete paralysis where I had to shut down and I think they were glimpses of what what the last five years have been, which is working on that part, mm-hmm. which n- I would never have gotten to if I were not sober. Mm-hmm. Right. Right? It, it, that wouldn't have been. And so it's like sobriety. Here's the gifts is each year, each moment reveals something more and more beautiful and gracious that I could never have experienced had I not gotten sober in the first place. Yeah. And that's been 20-something years. Like, yeah, you don't just – I'm not – you, it just doesn't happen. Just it's a happen. process. Yeah. yeah. 
You know, this makes me think a lot about this is something that has gone on since the beginning of time with with human interaction. And, you know, often you call it the deathbed perspective or, or, you know, the the older person on the way out of of life looking back and what, you know, either they wish they'd done or they want to instill into younger people as to, hey, here's what all I've learned. (laughs) Get ahead of this, you know. There's so much of that in the world of, of addiction, especially in the professional world, where we're, you know, looking at these younger folks or, or maybe not even that young and just saying, God, if only you could get it, you know, if only you would just hear what I'm saying and telling you right now, I would save you so much. But the journey's the journey, right? It's everything you're saying right now. It, you know, it wouldn't have been as effective or as meaningful as it is today if you had done it back then. Today, this is when it was supposed to happen. It's so true, you know, and as the mother to two grown children, um, watching them go through whatever they need to go through in early parenting, um, just as my mother did with me, there's a desire to fix or save them from that. And now, I mean, I don't know how I would feel if something really terrible was happening, but, Mm -hmm. you know, they're doing okay. And just letting their paths be theirs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the freedom of that, that's another thing with sobriety is the freedom of that with all people. You know, I think I've moved to a space in my life, and I hope this is true, that people have said they like being in my company because I'm not trying to fix them or Mm -hmm. rescue or save them. I'm just allowing them to be wherever they are in their journey, and that's good enough, Mm -hmm. you know. Just I'm here for you. Compassion, the root meaning of compassion is to suffer with. Mm -hmm. And if... I can do that with others. That's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and the saving and the rescuing and the changing and all that can often be a consequence of what you just said. You know, if you do it intentionally, then it, it often or rarely even has an effect. But if you're, if you're just there and you suffer with and, and you be, then that can be the outcome. Absolutely. I, I know there's different schools of thought on how to manage or how to be around those who are struggling with alcoholism, you know, mm-hmm. like the detachment. And, and I, I don't have a strong uh, academic knowledge of that information. I'll just say that my role as someone is trying to get sober or going through that is to be with them in a non-judgmental way mm-hmm. and holding to some strong boundaries, you know, and mostly, though, just escorting them through the process you know molly would you mind touching on just what it's like to parent with the knowledge of your own genetics your own kind of nature nurture what happens there when you've got kiddos watching the process just as you did with your mom yeah so touch on it well one of the in hindsight right one of the things that i did early on i could be terrified by any behavior that my child or children did that seemed addictive mm-hmm. right uh-huh. that I mean full-on terror because I just didn't want I'm, I'm, I was afraid of what they would come across or what you know and I was I was sharing with Robbie earlier that you know I would take them from having their first beer to now standing on a building with a sniper's rifle and shooting I mean that's how quick <laughs> The, the fear went. That's you know? tomorrow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, Your like, first beer tomorrow is yeah, the sniper. Yeah, and then you're, you know, like, I, w- I would be that terrified. Oh, um, 
And it took me a long time. It took me three or four years of their adolescence to sort of understand back to this is their journey. I'm going to be there for them. I'm going to have these strong boundaries and love them through it, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, And I had people that I could talk to that were older than me that had been through adolescence. So I'm serving as that now for other Mm -hmm. people who have young adolescents going through tough times. Yeah. What did you teach your kids about alcohol? They knew that they they came from a long line of alcoholics, you know, that alcoholics is all throughout our family. Um, They understood the possibilities. Um, It didn't keep them from drinking. So both of them drank all through high school. Mm -hmm. Um, and too extreme, actually. Um, I'm learning more and more about how extreme that was. <laughs> you know, like like uh, taking taxi cabs in the middle of the night to parties while I'm sleeping. This mm-hmm. sort of behavior, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it was, uh, uh, <laughs> I mean, I just don't even want to know some. Yes, I do, actually. <laughs> um, but I'll, here, I'll give you an example. So my daughter had attended a party um, that I knew about. I mean, she was going to this party, and about midnight, I got a call from her, and she was describing a scene that was un- unfolding that was potentially very dangerous for a young girl there. And I said, Helen, I'll be there in a minute. You know, she said, we need you. I need, uh, Mom, can you come? And I was like, sure. So I went, called the 911 on the way, you know, and I got there. The police were there, and my daughter was in tears and terrified, and that is the kind of relationship I wanted to have with her, though, so yeah. that any time she got into a situation where she was terrified and there was alcohol, she didn't feel afraid to call me but could feel like she could call me. Mm-hmm. And I had that with both of my kids. So while I didn't know everything that was going on, when they felt afraid, they could call me. And, you know, I would come get them or get one of their friends. Yeah. In a way, it's it's you know, alcohol is not the devil and, and you, and you're punished if you, you know, that it's, that's obviously not the the way to do it anyway, but that's kind of what you're highlighting is, is to make it okay. Even though, uh, educate. Yeah. And we talked about the consequences of their behavior and, you know, it, it wasn't making it evil or shaming them for it. It was creating a place where they could talk about it in all its fullness, mm-hmm. all of it. The good they felt, this, the bad they felt, all of it. Um, and that's, ironic, that's what my mom did for me once we kind of got through her fear around my alcoholism. You know, mm-hmm. when I was a teenager, she was terrified. But once she kind of realized that I'm going to go down that path, she just became available for me mm-hmm. to talk about it. Yeah. And how much work that must take as a mother to navigate like what is an appropriate boundary what is an appropriate response to what's actually happening you know whether it has to do with how much you drank or what time you came home or what situations you're putting yourself in and and knowing what to teach and I'm curious what it was like for you being a mom in recovery were you getting judgment from other parents were you ever hearing kind of discussions about how to navigate this you should you know, be doing this, you should be doing that? Was there any of that kind of culture around you? Well, yeah, I've, as the founder of Girls on the Run uh, and raising two children who were clearly living life outside the box themselves, you know, they were both innovative, uh, creative humans. (laughs) Uh, I'll say that 
tongue in cheek a little bit, <laughs> you know, like they were, they were doing their thing. Uh, I yeah. often felt judged or pressured from the outside world. Um, like I had messed up, mm-hmm. you know, because here I am trying to be the founder of this amazing program that is making big changes in people's lives. And I have two kids who are struggling through adolescence. Like suddenly they should not, like it should all be perfect right. or something. Mm-hmm. Oh, God. And I remember the exact moment when I realized that I can't let my insecurities about myself ref- be a reflection of my children's behavior. Like that mm-hmm. that's not healthy to be all tangled up in my self-esteem and my children's behavior. That's twisted. Mm-hmm. And so that's when everything started to change, when my relationship with them just blossomed into this mutual, amazing sharing of what's going on in your life. Do you, are you happy? What do you want to do different? I mean, our conversations started to go deep right at that point. It wasn't about how it looked. It wasn't performative. It mm-hmm. was like, how did last night go? Oh, well, that happened. Let's talk about that more. Mm-hmm. It was pretty dramatic. When that and happened. something that you've talked really fondly about having with your mom on your runs, yeah. you know, this really safe space of it didn't, she wasn't there to judge me about what I was doing or how I was behaving. She was truly there for me with that unconditional love. And I love what you said. I mean, I think that that's a lot of, I'm not a parent myself, but I think that's a lot of what I see in uh, my clients as a therapist of, I must be a bad parent because my children are doing X, Y, and Z. And how incongruent that is and how much we have to try to tease those two things apart because your self-worth and your effectiveness as a parent really cannot be based on outcomes. (laughs) It's got to be about the process and and about the relationship and how that's going because if it's directly tied to what they end up doing or what ends up happening, that's still another flavor of addiction with having that illusion of control over another human. I just had an aha moment. This is cool. This is cool. Oh, my gosh. All right. So just remembering, oh, my God. So my mom was, you know, five years sober when I had my first blackout. And she was working at a place that at the time was called the Randolph Clinic. It's a treatment facility. And had come to do some programming at my school. And... My first blackout occurred a couple weeks before she's presenting on addiction and alcohol. And everybody in the school knows Molly was vomiting and blacking out and she was with this boy and all this stuff. And here marches in my mother who's talking about sobriety. And I just suddenly thought that's when she enrolled me in the outpatient program. (laughs) And I think it was probably not so much for me, but like her Mm. you know I mean I I don't hold it against her sure but here she is trying to be the alcohol free life is great lady and her daughter is you know and I'm seeing how that played out in my own life right with my kids and when you break through oh my god (laughs) when you break through that you know to where it isn't that anymore but my child going through things and I'm going through things it becomes a mutual dialogue do you see what I mean yes yeah those generational patterns can be so strong. Poor my poor mother. Oh my god. Oh. Or whatever. <laughs> I don't even know if it was that. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, that was good stuff. You know, I, I think a lot about 
and this might be some of the personal stuff I've been going through recently, but just thinking about people that are in the space of to teach and educate, but also lead by example. And obviously parenting is kind of the, the ultimate mental health professional, <laughs> you know, uh, for lack of better words. But I mean, you know, and, and you already touched on the grace period, the person, or not period, the grace uh, topic where you, we, we have to have grace no matter what. Um, you know, and you and I did discuss this where, you know, do marriage counselors not have marital problems? Do mental health professionals not ha- suffer from mental health issues? Do substance abuse counselors not have substance abuse Do doctors not get sick? <laughs> of course, we're all human. Mm-hmm. We're all human. And as parents, it's the same thing. It's, we're all learning. We're all learning. And I think it's a tough topic because it's not reserved for alcoholism. Like, I think that's where this really fits for a lot of our listeners and for myself as more of a gray area drinker. Like, I'm going to have to talk to my kids about alcohol. And there is some substance abuse kind of history in my family, but that wouldn't necessarily be what I was leading with. Like, that's not my biggest concern. My biggest concern is knowing what I know about the neuroscience and wanting to delay it for as long as I can on their little brains. And that conversation can look the same between families who have experienced alcoholism and and families who haven't. And that control piece of really trying to dictate whether they do or don't or delay, I think is the toughest. And it's one of the reasons I think we get the most questions out of any episodes we've ever done. It's like parenting, 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 tell us how to teach our kids. How do we not make, you know, how do we make them not drink essentially? And there's just not a a really simple answer to that because I can't make them drink and I can't make them not drink. I can do my best with educating them. And then, like you said, being there. And I think one of the biggest things, you know, that's maybe a different type of complexity as a gray area drinker is we know that a lot of what is going to predict their behavior is what I'm modeling, And so if I'm not in recovery and I'm not modeling sobriety and why it's so beautiful, (laughs) then I have to be really careful what I am modeling with my alcohol use and, you know, just being willing to, to kind of look at those pieces. And I, I just really appreciate that you've been really open about the parenting piece because even talking about your, your mom and acknowledging how hard it must've been for her just five years sober and going, Oh gosh, my kid is now struggling with this thing. And, and what do I do? And, I don't know that anyone has this really firm buttoned up answer about here's how you do it. Can you imagine? It'd be like the best selling book. (laughs) There's a lot of attempts. (laughs) Robbie, write it. I I will say that I I absolutely love, love the relationship I have with both of my kids. I mean, it is crazy how much I love it. They're in their twenties and I loved it even when it was in their teens, when it was hard. I mean, we laughed, we had fun, we did, we, it just was, it, you know, I let them roller skate in the basement. I mean, we had, <laughs> it just, it was like Pippi Longstocking's house minus the, do- the horse. I don't know if y'all know who she is, but I mean, oh, it was do. just people coming and going <laughs> and it just was a place of full expression, including anger you know, they, they were permitted to be their full expressive selves. Nothing was off limits. It doesn't mean they were, you know, disrespectful. I think if I had any, it's not, not advice, but anything that I would say made 
our conversations through addiction and alcohol the best was just that they were fully, that nothing was off limits in terms of expressing themselves, you know? Mm-hmm. I think that is one possible s- solution, I think, mm. if, if there is such a thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, secrets are where shame lives. Yeah. 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 Well, we, and we were talking mm-hmm. about survival mechanisms and, and defense mechanisms and things that we do to not feel pain. And that's it. You know, if you're allowed to express and allowed to not feel that shame, the intensity of the pain might be less. Mm-hmm. And therefore, you might not need to cover it up and push it and maybe drink over it or use over it. Yeah. Think about that. A shame free house. I don't know what the positive of that is. What is that? A fully mm-hmm. open house. I mean, I don't know what the other, the, the more positive in that is. But can you imagine it's growing up? In yeah. Can you imagine growing up without shame? How liberating mm-hmm. that would be. You'd be fully. I don't know. Anyway, well, that's. Do you, do you think that translates over to and not trying to tie this up in a little bow, mm-hmm. but it did just make a light go off. But a lot of your mission early on, right? I mean, it's about women and the mm-hmm. way in the girl box mm-hmm. i mean there's a lot of shame in that box there's mm-hmm. a lot of control in that box oh. coming from fear and shame and and all that junk so many shoulds right yes. it's right. all connected do you think societal patterns and and the the girl box have evolved do you think it's changed for the better i think i think things are better uh and I think things are worse. Like, can you, yeah. can you have both? I, you know, mm-hmm. um, just the information that's come out around the social media and its influence on young girls and women. You know, back when I started Girls on the Run, we were talking about it in media, print advertising, mm-hmm. just the airbrushing and all of that. And it's just, it's just mm-hmm. shi- um, shape-shifted yeah. into now social media. Um, and then what's happening politically right now, mm-hmm. you know, I... I just think, though, women mm-hmm. and girls are becoming more out, uh, not outspoken. They're just speaking up more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do think things are better in that realm. Mm-hmm. The Me Too movement, all of it. Because of all this boldness mm-hmm. that is coming out through women, right. we're seeing a sort of... Correction. Yeah, like an overcorrection. overcorrection. Yeah, right. and uh, that w- I don't believe that will mm-hmm. last. I don't want to think it will. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I have to believe it can't. <laughs> Are you open to accepting yeah. that you were a fundamental part in this change? I like to think that I was one of many that was a part of that change. I mean, mm-hmm. I remember the second or third year of Girls on the Run, we had a consultant come in to help us scale the organization. And uh, she said, visualize what impact the organization will have. You know, So we had to diagram a picture, and I had a picture of uh, – a diverse num- faces on a Time magazine cover, and it said the future is women or something. Mm-hmm. And it's been interesting to see how, like, I think there have been a few Time magazine covers that have <laughs> had that on there. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so I like to think that we've we've had something to do with yeah. it. Yeah, well, you have. We've got two kind of power questions that we do with all of our guests. Molly Barker, why do you care? Take your time. If you don't cry, you're not doing it right. That's the rule. You have to cry when you answer this question. (laughs) (laughs) 
So yeah. I usually ask other people that qu these yeah. questions. This uh -huh. is not okay. That's Why do right. I care? I care. Thank you. Hold on a minute. I care because there is so much joy to be had that is accessible when and if we know it is there. Perfect. The other thing that we always like to ask is what are the three kind of top values that you see in living a life without alcohol? The freedom to be my whole self, for sure, without shame. The authenticity and realness of the relationships I have with pretty much everybody in my life. And three, frankly, my, my physical health. I'm still able to do triathlons and run and celebrate my body and what it can do. Lovely. Molly, thank you so much for coming on. We really love you. We love everything you do, and we're excited to see what you do next, even if it's just chilling. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thanks a lot, y'all. Thank you, Molly. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are solely those of the hosts and guests and are not a substitute for medical advice. If you feel like you may need professional help, here are some resources. For the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration hotline, call 1-800-662-4357 or visit smsa.gov. For listeners in the Charlotte, North Carolina community, visit dilworthcenter.org or call 704-372-6969 or visit theblanchardinstitute.com or call 704-288-1097.